The true crime reporter never settles for standing outside the yellow crime scene tape. You knock on doors, dig through records, and cultivate sources to get to the bottom of the story. I'm Robert Riggs, the host and creator of the True Crime Reporter podcast, back with another story from three decades of investigative reporting. In this episode, I pulled out my reporter's notebooks, my law enforcement sources opened up their confidential case files, we sat down together to talk. And you can listen in to our journey into darkness. But before you do, be advised that this podcast is for a mature audience and not for the faint of heart. Some episodes may contain profanity and graphic details of violent crimes. Kenneth McDuff is the only man in Texas history to receive three death sentences. McDuff received his first death sentence for the broomstick murders in 1966. He was supposed to go to the electric chair. But I explained in earlier episodes that McDuff's sentence was commuted to life when the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the death penalty in 1972. McDuff became eligible for parole and resumed his killing ways three days after his release from prison in 1989. McDuff abducted 28-year-old Colleen Reed from an Austin car wash and murdered her shortly after Christmas of 1991. Two months later, the serial killer abducted 22-year-old Melissa Norther from a Waco convenience store and murdered the pregnant mother of two children in March of 1992. Both capital murder trials were moved to different cities because of pre-trial publicity. This episode begins with the first trial in Houston. Under the glare of intense publicity, Kenneth McDuff won on trial in Houston for the capital murder of 22-year-old Melissa Northrop. Trouble flared when McDuff scuffled with four deputies. He didn't like them holding his arm as they escorted him out of the courtroom. The McLennan County District Attorney called U.S. Marshal Parnell McNamara and Falls County Sheriff Larry Pamplin to testify. As you may recall from earlier episodes, Sheriff Pamplin and his father had a rolling gun battle with McDuff in 1966 over the broomstick murders. And Pamplin had predicted that bodies would start turning up after McDuff paroled out of prison. Pamplin knew the monster inside McDuff better than any law officer in Texas. Pamplin told the DA he would take the stand against McDuff, armed and ready for the slightest provocation. I said there'd be one stipulation. I said I am aware of what he did the day before where he jumped four deputies in the elevator. And I basically told him that I'd be happy to be there but I would be well-armed, and if he so much as scratched his ass in the courtroom, that I'd kill him right there in the courtroom. And he said, and the judge said? And I told him that he needed to tell the judge what was going on because I was going to take my wife with me to Houston, and she would be sitting there on the front row witnessing everything taking place and i told her i said if anything starts just hit the floor because i will kill him right in the courtroom because too many people had already lost their life 
because it Kenneth Macduff. And when he saw you, he whispered to his lawyer, but it was overheard. He told me that he heard Kenneth Macduff tell his attorney, get that son of a bitch out of here. He's just itching to kill me. And he's the only person that I'm deathly afraid of. Well, do you kind of wear that as a badge of honor in a sense? That's the only true statement that I have ever heard that Kenneth Macduff said. And yes, if he had started uh, a situation in that courtroom, it would have been over with. During the trial, Macduff came face to face with his two known accomplices, Roy Dale Green and Alva Hank Worley. Roy Dale Green testified against Macduff in the 1966 murders of the three teenagers in Fort Worth, the Broomstick Murders. When Macduff spotted him in the courtroom, he told deputies he just wanted to be locked in a holding cell with Green. Alva Hank Worley, Macduff's accomplice in the abduction of Colleen Reed from an Austin car wash, testified. Worley told the jury the grisly details of how Macduff raped and tortured the 28-year-old accountant. You heard his confession in an earlier episode. Female members of the jury teared up as they listened to the ghastly last hours of Reed's life. Against his lawyer's advice, Macduff took the stand in his own defense. Author Gary Laverne and I heard Macduff spin a bizarre tale. So when he took the stand in the first murder trial in his own defense against the advice of his attorney, Mm -hmm. he just contemporaneously spun out this yarn of Mm -hmm. where he was and how he couldn't have done it. Mm -hmm. But I, sitting there as a reporter, am just poking it full of holes. Like, that is the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard. But he certainly thought that he'd be very persuasive to the Mm -hmm. jury. He, He had an ego. Well, and it's an ego that the Austin Police Department tried to exploit. Um, when you're dealing, at least in my opinion, as a, as a writer, um, a lot of people say, well, if he lied to you for five hours, what good was it? But that, you know, that's the wrong attitude to take. When you're dealing with a Macduff, lies are as important as the truth to him because he's, he's telling you what he wants you to believe. You don't have to believe it, but it's still valuable. Um, And so uh, when he took that stand that you witnessed, um, it it was part of his ego to believe that what he says is the truth because he said it. And because he said it, you got to believe it. And that's why he overruled his own attorneys and took the stand because he felt that if he got up there and he said something, they had to believe it. And of course they didn't. And that ego was such that if you look back at his crimes and the details we know, he had to have an accomplice. Uh, Sheriff Pamplin said it was always somebody of uh, strong muscle and weak mind. <laughs> but it was like he needed somebody to perform Absolutely. in front of I, it, it was, it's not, in, in a perverted sort of way, it's not fun unless somebody sees it or unless you can talk about it or unless you can shock someone. The, the, the young women that he brutalized and the, young, and the boys that he killed, well, I mean, that wouldn't have been fun if he had done it all by himself and uh, no one would have seen it. And so you have a Roy Dale Green or an 
Alva Hank Worley, weak-willed people who he figured he could control. But what he, what he didn't figure on is that they would have an ounce of consciousness that he didn't even have. Both of these unfortunate, and I've gotten into trouble for saying this, uh, because, you know, you're not supposed to use the word stupid, mm-hmm. but both of those men suffered from what I call, in my book, heartbreaking stupidity. And I've gotten into trouble for even saying that. But that I couldn't kid myself anymore. Um, that's what was going on. And, and, and McDuff understood that. I mean, it's not like McDuff picked out a high school graduate to bring along. I mean, it, he wanted to impress people with his brutality, and anyone with an ounce of uh, intelligence or education would not have been impressed. Macduff told a rambling story to the jury. He scolded his attorney when he tried to interrupt. Macduff failed to offer up a single defense witness to substantiate anything he had to say. Three decades later, Parnell McNamara, now the McLennan County Sheriff in Texas, and I discussed Macduff's testimony. He really thought he was smarter than everybody. It was sort of something out of fantasy land. Uh, He would jump around from one thing to the other. Uh, He was riding a train, and then he, uh, you know, just came up with this off-the-wall jargon that didn't really make any sense. And... uh, you know, he would kind of laugh, and and uh, I, I'm not sure how to describe it. But it it was just totally stupid, and at some points, kind of incoherent. Yeah, uh, just uh, off the wall stuff that he was coming up with, where he was, what he did, how he got to Kansas City. It was all just a bunch of BS. There seemed to be a physical similarity between all of his victims. Right. Most all of his victims were, for whatever reason, brunette, and they were small females that he could easily manhandle. Some of them he would be able to pick them up by the throat, get their feet off the ground where they couldn't fight him. He's a big man. He was a big man. He was 6'3", 6'4". At one point, weighed close to 270, a big, strong guy. And I remember when we put the handcuffs on him, they would only click one time. And so we thought, well, we may even have to put leg irons on his hands. Uh, he's just a big bone guy, just a big, mean Yeah, monster. wasn't fat. No. Just no. a big, I guess, yeah. Maybe pumped a lot of iron when he was in prison, too, Yeah, they did. Yeah, he was, uh, he was a big, strong guy, and, and he wanted small ladies, small girls that he could manhandle and beat them up, torture them, get control of them. On February 16th of 1993, following a two-week trial, an eight-woman, four-man jury deliberated for just under four hours. Melissa Northrup's sister-in-laws, the same ladies that clenched their fist and shouted at McDuff when he was brought back to Waco, sat in the front row of the courtroom. They held hands and braced each other to hear the jury's decision. Macduff stood with a vacant stare in his cold, dark eyes. The judge read the verdict. We, the jury, find the defendant, Kenneth Allen Macduff, guilty of capital murder, as charged in the indictment. Macduff sat down and twiddled his thumbs as the judge polled jury members about their decision. 
Outside the courtroom, Brenda Solomon, Melissa Northrup's mother, told me it had been a painful 11-month ordeal waiting for justice. She dreaded the long appeals process that lay ahead. And this man is going to die. The only thing I hate about it is that we're going to have to wait 10 to 15 years before he does. And that's not right. Melissa didn't get to wait 10 or 15 more years. I found Northrop's brother waiting outside the courthouse door for deputies to take McDuff back to jail. Putting him to death will put my sister at rest. Until th this man dies, my sister, you know. Sheriff's deputies clutched McDuff and opened the courthouse door. McDuff wore a dark suit and a tie with a smirk on his face. So I asked McDuff about his plans for the future. McDuff sarcastically replied, I guess I'm going to die, apparently. We all do, you know. A second trial jury in Seguin, Texas, sentenced McDuff to die by lethal injection for the abduction and murder of 28-year-old Colleen Reed on March 1st of 1994. After hearing eight days of testimony, the jury of seven men and five women deliberated for two and a half hours. The verdict came down on the second anniversary of Melissa Northrup's kidnapping. McDuff faced testimony from his accomplice, 36-year-old Alva Hank Worley. At the beginning of the trial, Worley threatened to back out if he didn't get a better plea bargain deal. His attorney told reporters that the ex-con, quote, feels that life is too much punishment for his participation. You may want to go back and listen to Worley's confession in Episode 6 and decide if a life sentence was too much punishment because he too raped the young woman and he never lifted a finger to save her from McDuff. Seven months later, Worley pleaded guilty to a 40-year prison sentence for aggravated sexual assault. Since then, Worley has come up for parole and he has been denied every time. But Colleen Reed's sister, Lori Bible, became a champion of victims' rights. She held news conferences to press for legislative reforms. After the verdict, Bible said of McDuff's sentence, as long as he is never free again, I don't want that man ever, ever to hurt another family again. Author Gary Laverne and I covered both of McDuff's trials. After studying this crime, talking to him in prison, probably the worst serial killer, certainly in, in Texas history ever, uh, the only man to get three death sentences in Texas, and the, that third one was an insurance policy to make sure if the second one got overturned, right. he would not ever be out again. Well, and, and uh, you know, the, the Travis County DA was criticized for that. He said, how many death penalties do you want? Well, he had one already, and he got out of it. So, you know, yeah. it was an insurance policy, and it was, it was worth it. But I would add, I would add this: He's the only person I know of who's ever had two different death row numbers, because he had one death row number in 1966, and then with Furman versus Georgia, he went to life in prison, gets out on parole, gets caught again, gets convicted again, goes back to death row a second time with a different death row number. Now there may, be, I know of no other example of that. Two different death row numbers. I've never heard of that. I do recall in his second um, 
trial um, for murder for Colleen Reed. Mm -hmm. Ronnie Earl, the district attorney, was sitting next to me. His assistants were trying the case. Mm -hmm. And there was a moment he looked at me and he said, my God, he is a killing machine. Mm -hmm. And one of the one of the criticisms of my book is that that's basically what I said about it. And um, you know, I, my my day job at the time I've just retired a few a few months ago, but my day job was on a was on a university campus, and um, you know, I, I've, I've been approached by a number of the enlightened. Uh, on on that campus, and can't you see that he's a product of his times? And I, no, I don't buy that at all. I want to tell you that just because we don't understand why someone would take pleasure in doing such such unspeakable things, that doesn't make him crazy. It makes him mean, but it doesn't make him crazy. He knew what he was doing. He understood the pain he was inflicting. And he enjoyed it. Now, I don't understand how anybody can enjoy that, but that doesn't make him crazy. It makes him different from me and you, and maybe that's what makes him a a criminal. Next on True Crime Reporter, McDuff's capital murder trial leaves a mystery unsolved. Where are the bodies of Colleen Reed and McDuff's other victims? Author Gary Laverne confronts the serial killer on death row to try to find out. He had uh, brown eyes that were not <laughs> not just like the brown eyes that you would see uh, in most people. They were they were darker. They uh, and they were they were piercing. But he only used that gaze, that famous gaze of his, if he thought he could intimidate you. And and once once he I I made it clear I was not afraid of him. And, and I didn't say, Mac, I'm not afraid of you or anything like yeah. that. I, I didn't have to. What I, It bothered him if you returned his gaze and you didn't, and you didn't flinch. And again, I made, a, I made a decision that that's what I was going to do. We want to be your favorite podcast and we'll appreciate your review wherever you are listening to this podcast. If you have a suggestion or know of a case we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. To follow our email messages with updates and bonus information from episodes, please join our fan base at truecrimereporter.com. True Crime Reporter is a trademarked and copyrighted news production, hosted and written by me, Robert Riggs, executive producer, Elizabeth Arnold, producer and operations manager, Grace Woodward, Producer, Siler Burr. Original music for the Free to Kill series, Blair King. Sound design for Free to Kill, Matt Stoker. Graphics, Brian David Kerr. You can read more about all of our news team members at truecrimereporter.com.